All right, scripture reading this morning is uh, from Judges. It's chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kushan uh, Rishab. <laughs> I did it. Kashan Rishathim, we'll say that, eight years. Um, oh, no, king of Mesopotamia, goodness. And the people of Israel served Kashan Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kishan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would open your word to us to show us more of who you are through your Son, Jesus Christ. Show us more of your beauty, your grace, your mercy through the beautiful book of Judges. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by your Spirit. I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3, Judges chapter 3, where we finally get to look at our first judge. If you haven't been with us so far, we have just been covering the introductory material in chapters 1 and 2 and the first little bit of chapter 3 of Judges. And this introductory material, my, uh, my Old Testament seminary prof would actually say it's, it's like a diagnosis. Like the, the opening chapters have shown us what went wrong with Israel, and they're trying to settle the land of Canaan, uh, and it showed us how God responded. In fact, if you remember at the very end of last week, we got a summary, a, a summary of the cycle that we're going to see on repeat throughout the rest of this book. If you remember what it is, we're going to see a cycle of the people rebelling against God, God's wrath against them for their rebellion, the people regretting their decision, God rescuing them anyway, then giving the land rest, and then that sucker repeats. So rebellion, wrath, regret, rescue, rest, repeat. That's the diagnosis. And now, my Old Testament prof would say that through these cycles of judges, we're going to get case studies. We're going to get some real, live, on-the-ground examples of how this cycle of sin and grace is going to play out. And each of these cycles that we're going to go through, there's going to be six in all. There's some other stuff sprinkled in there that we'll cover, but we'll go through six cycles of major judges. Each one will highlight something different for us, and I, I believe that this first cycle highlights what's at the center of them all. Namely, it highlights for us the one who is at work doing the saving. 
I think that's what we're going to see right here. This, this cycle, I believe, the first one we get, aims to answer the question, who saved them? Is Israel sins? And they're rescued again and again and again. This cycle answers the question, who saved them? Those three words actually appear right in the center of our passage today. Not as a question, but as a statement. Look at verse 9. It says, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Well, who is that? Who is it doing the saving? Who is the deliverer? I know the next word in the text names him Othniel. Othniel's the deliverer. He's the savior. He's the one who saved Israel. But is that all that we're meant to see? Is, is Othniel really at the center of this story? Or, or are we being shown at a deeper level, the judge, the Savior, who will be at the center of every single one of these cycles. Who's at the center of every story ever, including yours and, and mine. When we ask the question, who saved them, Israel back then, or who saves me right here and now, I think the answer to that question is what we are supposed to see right here. And I think the way that we are supposed to see it is by looking at this story through the eyes of the Israelites who are in it. So, let's do that. Begin reading with me. Judges chapter 3 and verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Stop right there. I know, moving at a breakneck speed already. We've heard these words before. You remember? All you got to do is go right back up to chapter 2, verse 11, and you will see the exact same words. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. When, when we were going through the introduction in chapter 2, and it was laying out for us what the cycle of sin would look like, this was how it began. With the people rebelling. And now we're seeing it, case study, live action. In fact, this entire first cycle right here, this Othniel story, it it reads like a fill-in-the-blank from the introduction. Like it, If you go back and just read the summary of the cycle at the end of chapter 2, it's like the author just took that cycle from the introduction and didn't really alter it much at all. He just kind of stuck in some names and some places, and that's it. There's really not much else here. Out of all the major judge narratives, this one is the shortest. It's the sparsest on details. And you read it right after coming off the introduction of chapter 2, and you're left asking, am I really seeing anything new here at all? Yes. We're seeing it in the subtleties. Go back to verse 7, but let's keep reading. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. If you compare chapter 2, verse 11, and what we just read in chapter 3 and verse 7, do you see the subtle change? In both passages, we're told that the people did what was evil inside the Lord. In both passages, we're told what that evil was, that they served the Baals and Asherah. But right here, the subtle changes, we're told why. 
why they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, why they served the Baals and Asheroth. Why did they do it? Because they forgot. They forgot the Lord their God, which, biblically speaking, the word forget, the word remember, they're not used in the kind of normal way that we use them. Biblically speaking, to forget doesn't mean like it literally just kind of fell out of their head. Everything they knew about God, they just didn't remember that anymore at all. That's not how the Bible typically uses the language of forgetting and remembering. In Scripture, to remember something means to act on it. Just read the flood account in Genesis. And the Lord remembered Noah. It wasn't like he forgot. I misplaced something somewhere. Something with family. And aha! And the Lord remembered Noah. No, no, that's not what's going on. It meant that the Lord remembered his promise to Noah and he acted upon it. Kept it. He did it. This is what it means to remember. Typically in Scripture is to act on something, to live in accordance with a, a truth. A perfect example, uh, Psalm chapter 25 and verse 6. The psalmist says this. He says, he's talking to the Lord, and he says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. The psalmist is not worried that God has forgotten that he is a God of mercy and steadfast love. Like God's having like an existential identity crisis. Am I a God of mercy or not? I can't really remember. Hope somebody reminds me through their prayers. That's, that's not what's going on at all. The psalmist, is, he's praying that God will act in accordance with his mercy and love. In the very next verse, the psalmist prays this, remember not the sins of my youth. Or in other words, forget the sins of my youth and my transgressions. The psalmist doesn't think that God can actually literally forget the things that he has done. No, he's praying and asking the Lord, don't act in accordance with what I've done. Don't, don't actually give me what I deserve. Put that prayer together and the psalmist is praying, forget my sin, remember your mercy. Don't give me what I deserve in accordance with my sin. Show me grace in accordance with who you are. This is what the Bible means when it constantly calls us to remember, to live in accordance with, to, to act in line with the, the truth. And for us to forget means that we are living, acting as if the truths we know aren't really real. This is what Israel is doing right here. In Judges 3 and verse 7, when they forget the Lord their God. They're acting as if he's not really the Lord their God. Man, I'm glad we never do that. I don't know about y'all. I'm thankful that I never forget all the truths that I've learned about God's sovereignty and grace and love and mercy. I'm so thankful that I always live as if these things I know are, are to be true or are really real. Shades, obviously, my words are dripping with sarcasm. We know the truth. We know these truths about who God is. But if we are honest, if I'm honest, are we not just as forgetful as Israel is right here? And when, when we are forgetful, we do the same thing that Israel does. Look at it again. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. 
When Israel forgets that they already have a savior, they turn to other saviors. We do the same thing. Because we all know that we are people in need of saving. Every single person on the planet knows there is something wrong in this world. There's something wrong with us, something wrong in us. And we all want it to be, we all want the brokenness to be fixed. We all want the emptiness in us to be filled. Every single person seeks a savior. Everyone is after an answer to the question, who will save? And Shades, when we forget that we have an answer to that question. When we forget and don't live in line with the fact that we have a Savior, we will turn to others. Typically, to the same ones that Israel seeks right here. Baal and Asheroth. In other words, secular saviors. Worldly. The ones that the world has to offer. Israel turns to secular saviors and so do we. This is the first thing. There's going to be three, three things we need to see. This is the first thing we need to see to try and answer the question, who saved them? Number one, we look to secular saviors. All too often, we look to secular saviors. For Israel, it was Baal and Asheroth. Who is it for us? Baal and Asheroth, We've talked about this a little bit already. They were fertility gods in Canaanite culture. In other words, you would, uh, you would worship them if you needed something having to do with fertility. Crops, cattle, kids. In an agricultural society, those are the top three things you need for prosperity. This is why Baal and Asheroth were, were the most popular amongst Canaanite Worshippers. In other words, Baal and Asheroth were the secular saviors who could give you what you needed in order to have the good life in Canaanite culture. Shades, every culture has its fertility gods. Every culture has secular saviors that promise they can give you what you need in order to have the good life. So what modern for us, in our context, what, what modern American fertility gods do you find yourself most tempted to worship? What or who are the secular saviors that we look to? So this is the point in sermon application where I would normally start listing examples for you. Or you might look to this, or you might look to that, or whatever. I don't want to do that today. Uh, I want to go against the grain and do something you're not supposed to do when preaching. I've been doing this long enough. I'm allowed to break the rules. I want to let us sit in some uncomfortable silence. We're not done. I got more. But I want to let us sit in some uncomfortable silence for just a second. And I want to challenge each of us to do the hard thing of listening to the Spirit apply this word to our hearts and bring to mind precisely who our personal Baals and Asheroth are. So, as uncomfortable as it shall be, take just a minute. Take just a minute 
ask the Lord to reveal to you right now who are the secular saviors that I look to in this world to save me from my brokenness and emptiness, to fix me and fill me and give me the good life. Take just a moment. I don't know what the Lord brought to mind for you. Shades, I would plead with you, do not be deceived by any secular Savior. They can never deliver on what they promise. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. The Lord says, my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me fountain of living waters too. They have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, the Lord says that he is like an ever-flowing, erupting, living fountain of water, eternally springing up to slake the thirst of your soul. And when we turn from him to any other savior, it's like we leave that spring to hew out a cistern of stank, stagnant water. And it can't even hold that because it's full of cracks. And it will ultimately leak and leave our souls bone dry. Secular saviors can never satisfy shades. I think that's what we are seeing so simply and clearly right here in this first cycle. I think we're seeing secular saviors can never satisfy. I think we see it in verse 8. Look at it. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Baal and Asheroth don't save. They don't solve Israel's problems. They only create more. Is that not what we see right here in verse 8? Israel gives themselves, sells themselves to these gods, and they end up being given and sold to their nations. Idolatry ends up enslaving them, not setting them free. Do, do, do you see that so clearly? The verses 7 and 8 are parallel. They use the same language. Verse 7 says that the people served 
foreign gods. And so in verse 8, they end up serving foreign nations. The punishment fits the crime. Idolatry ends in enslavement. It always does, Shades. Always. But even this, even this is God's grace towards his people. I know. Yes, it says his anger was kindled against them. Yes, God is the one who sold his people into this enslavement. But even this is his grace. Because, I love uh, pastor and scholar uh, Dale Ralph Davis, which is just a fun name. Those parents were on the A game with naming that kid Dale Ralph Davis. I don't know. It's just fun. But anyway, he says what we're seeing on display right here is God's grace and his passion. Because what we're seeing, this is his words, God will not allow Israel to become cozy in their infidelity. He refuses to let his people remain comfortable in their sin. This is his love, his grace. He's not going to let them give themselves away. This is meant, his anger, his wrath is meant to be a means to make them cry out to him. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, great baby name right there, by the way, if any parents are looking, Othniel. I actually know an Othniel. He goes by Nate, but that's beside the point. His real name's Othniel. Anyway, he raised up a deliverer for the people who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So the people cry out, this is not in repentance. The text does not say that. It indicates the other, the Hebrew right here indicates that this is a cry of pain or a cry of distress. It's a cry of regret. And even that moves the Lord to compassion, to pity for his people in the midst of their pain. He is a God who is slow to anger, slow to wrath, and quick to compassion, quick to pour out his grace. And he does so right here by providing a deliverer. Moshiach, deliverer, literally means savior. Who's our savior we get? Othniel. And we think, aha, here's our answer to our question. Who saved them? Who saved Israel? Not a secular savior. Twas a sanctified savior, it was. This is the second thing we need to see in order to answer our question, who saved them? Number two, we look to sanctified saviors. Often, we look to sanctified saviors. What I mean by that sanctified, I mean God-fearing, Christ-following, spirit-empowered saviors. That's the very next thing we hear about Othniel right here is that he is spirit-empowered. I mean, everything we hear about this guy is positive, right? This is not the first time we've heard about Othniel. Everything we've already seen about him has been positive. If you remember back in Judges chapter 1, Othniel was the one who answered the call of Caleb. Caleb, one of the final remaining leaders of that former faithful generation, was staring down a battle at Kiriath-Sephir, and he said, I need a faithful leader to lead an army to victory. Othniel answered that call. He rose to the occasion. He fought. He won. He would end up marrying Caleb's daughter. And as far as we know, he has lived faithfully. He, nothing negative is said about Othniel. That is very rare in the book of Judges. Everything we've seen about this guy has held him up as the model Israelite. So it makes sense that he would be the first judge set before us as the model judge. This, this is what the judges are supposed to be like. 
Othniel's held up as a model of what a faithful, sanctified Savior looks like. That's what we see. Look at verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. Now we get a definition of what that means. Remember, he's a military leader who delivers. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kushan Rishathame, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishathame. There's a fun baby name. I don't suggest it at all. Kushan Rishathame. It's, it's actually, it's likely a pejorative nickname that was either given to him by the Israelites in that day or just given him to him by our, our author right here because it literally means Kushan of double wickedness. Kushan of double wickedness. Who, we are told, is the king of Mesopotamia. Now, to get the full effect of like the ancient Israelite smack talk that's going on right here, you got to know the Hebrew behind the word Mesopotamia. It's Aram Naharim, which means Aram of double rivers. So now you're equipped to see the rhyme in Hebrew and the wordplay in English. Kushan Rishathame of Aram Naharim. Ha ha, we made it rhyme. And it means Kushan double wickedness from Aram double rivers. These are basically ancient Near Eastern your mama jokes. All right? This is good old-fashioned smack talk right here. But it's more than that. It's more than that because it lets us know that we are actually seeing the most powerful and the most wicked enemy that Israel is going to face in the entire book of Judges. Most of the time, what we're going to get them facing down are other tribal leaders. This is no mere tribal leader right here. This is a world-class wicked emperor who, even though he's from a place as far away as Mesopotamia, I mean, that's, that's pretty far northeast for Israel. And even though he's that far away, he's so powerful, he's going to manage to hold sway over Israel for eight years. All of that magnifies for us the Spirit's power that is being displayed through Othniel. If the enemy is that great, that big, that powerful, that evil, then how good, great, and awesome is the Spirit of God and his work through Othniel, the sanctified Savior. And we got to be careful right here because all of that tempts us to only see Othniel as the one bringing salvation. Look at the powerful work of the Lord through him. Shades, Othniel is portrayed to us positively. But is this all we see? Like in trying to answer the question, who saved them back then, who saves us here and now, are we tempted when God uses the means of a sanctified Savior, are we tempted to look to them as if they are the ultimate Savior? People who are God-fearing, Christ-following, Spirit-empowered, who, yes, have actually been raised up by the Lord, but are not Him, are we tempted to let our gratefulness for salvation, our spirituality, all of this thing, are we willing to let it terminate on them? Shades, this is the point. In sermon application, when I would normally list several examples for you of ways that we do this, ways that we look to sanctified saviors in our own lives. I don't want to do that today. I want to invite you again 
into the uncomfortable silence. I want to challenge each of us to listen to the Spirit, apply this word to our hearts, and bring to mind precisely who are the sanctified saviors in our lives that we are tempted to put in place of the Lord. Like, like take just a moment and ask the Lord, who are the good godly people? Authors, parents, mentors, pastors, teachers, peers, whoever. Who are the specific people, not general categories, but specific people raised up by the Lord in my life for good effect, but that I am so often tempted to elevate to take his place? Who do I turn into a sanctified Savior? Take a few moments. Because the Lord is faithful to raise up people that we need in our lives when we need them. Othniel was raised up by God. But to be a savior with a lowercase s. He was a model savior meant to point us to the ultimate savior. That, that is what all of the judges in this book are meant to do. They're all meant to point beyond themselves to the ultimate judge. If we see that here with Othniel, we will surely see it with the rest, because he's as good as it gets. It's so easy. Even as we read this book, it's so easy for us to elevate these kinds of people in our lives. It's so easy for us to read these stories and make these stories center on the judges themselves, make them out to be the ultimate heroes. I, I've shared with you already that as a kid, I had a Samson action figure. He's the last judge that we're going to encounter in, in the book of Judges. I had a Samson action figure, uh, yes, complete with a Delilah action figure. Um, I didn't buy them. Talk, talk to my parents. Um, 
They already called me after I mentioned this last time. I'll get a call again, I'm sure. They're like, we were trying to help. And, to do, and I'm, I'm like, Mom, Dad, you, you, you did. I'm sure my children are going to tell stories about the horrible things that I... I'm just kidding. I'm digging a further hole. Let's keep going. I've shared with you that I had these action figures. What I didn't tell you is that they came with a cassette tape. College students and younger, ask your parents. Um, they came with a cassette tape and, and a little book. It was a whole like, you know, turn the page at the chime kind of thing. Anybody remember these? Is this just me? I had them on vinyl too. Anyway, Samson, his little book, the cassette, it was actually, he was a part of a whole series of action figures. Yes, I had them all. Um, a whole series of cassettes and booklets, and the title of, of the series was Heroes of the Kingdom. This is what we do. We, we elevate these kinds of figures and make them the ultimate point, the ultimate hero of the story. But here's the deal. The book of Judges itself is actually going to labor to show us that the judges are not the ultimate hero. And I believe that is what we are being shown, especially right here with Othniel, the model judge. They don't get any better than him. If ever there was a judge who would be the hero, this is him. But this is where we have got to see number three. Number three, we look to the sovereign Savior. We are so often tempted to look to secular saviors or even sanctified saviors, but we need, we must look to the sovereign Savior. If we want to know the answer to our question, who saved them, the Israelites back then, who saves us now, then we must look to the sovereign Savior himself, God himself. He's the hero of the story. God himself, he is the ultimate judge. God himself is the ultimate sovereign savior. Just read verse 11. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, best judge we're ever gonna get, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. He died. He didn't last you make Othniel or anyone like him your ultimate savior and he will turn out to be just another broken cistern that will leave your heart thirsty. And last, literal life leaks out of him. There is only one, shades, there is only one ever-flowing fountain of living water. There is only one who can slake the thirst of your soul. There is only one who can ultimately, sovereignly, save. And to see him right here in this story, we need to look at it not only through the, through the eyes of the Israelites who are in the story, that's what I told you at the beginning, but we also need to back up and see this story through the eyes of the Spirit who is writing it. Look, look again at verses 9 and 10 and see what the sovereign author of this passage, the Holy Spirit of God, see what he emphasizes. Look at it. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. He can't do any saving until he's been raised up. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He can't do any judging until the spirit of the Lord is upon him. He, Othniel, went out to war. And the Lord gave Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishathaim. 
His hand can't prevail until the Lord has first, by his own hand, given the enemy over to him. Do you, do you see who is at the head, the subject of all of these verbs? The Lord raised up. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. The Lord gave. It is clearly the Lord who saves. I think we see that even through what is unclear in these verses. In verse 9, there's a phrase that in the Hebrew is pretty unclear. It's actually the phrase from which I took our title for today. Who saved them? That's not actually what the Hebrew says. That's, that's the translators making a decision for us so that we can read this clearly. When you make it say, who saved them, then the phrase clearly refers to Othniel. Lord raised up a deliverer who saved them. This deliverer saved them. His name's Othniel. Clear as day. The Hebrew literally says, he saved them. Actually, and he saved them. So let me, let me read it to you that way. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, and he saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz. You can read that two ways. The Lord raised up a deliverer, and he, the Lord, saved them. Or you can read it the way it's been translated for us. The Lord raised up a deliverer, and he, the deliverer, Othniel, saved them. It's unclear in the Hebrew. Who does this phrase, he saved them, refer to? Othniel or the Lord? I think it's unclear on purpose because it refers to both. Othniel was raised up by the Lord to serve as a savior, but it is ultimately the Lord working through him who is the one ultimately doing the saving. That is what we are meant to see at the center of this first cycle so that we will see it at the center of every cycle, of every story, including our story. Shades, no matter what means, what person, what judge God uses to answer the question, who saved them and who saves me, it is always ultimately the same sovereign Savior who is the one ultimately doing the saving, Jesus. That is the answer to the question, who saved them? Who saves me? Ultimately, the sovereign Savior, Jesus. And you may be thinking, Jonathan, I have known that that was the answer since the very beginning of this sermon. The sermon has taught me nothing new. As soon as you posed the question, who saved them? I knew the answer. It's going to be God. It's going to be Jesus. Every kid in Sunday school can tell you that. And to that, Shades, I say, yes. We all knew at the beginning. We all knew the answer to that question. We all knew it with our heads. My question is, have we forgotten it with our hearts? We all knew the answer with our heads, but do we live as if that truth, that God is the ultimate sovereign savior, do we live as if that truth is really real? Do we live remembering, acting on that reality that we have a sovereign savior at the center of the story, or do we live forgetting? Do, do we live acting as if secular saviors? or even sanctified ones, are what we truly need to fix our brokenness and fill our emptiness. Shades, do we live as if the sovereign Savior is really real? Judges is here to remind us of that reality. 
fact, I would argue all of Scripture exists to constantly remind us of what is really real. It exists to be used by the Spirit who authored it to renew our minds, to remind us of what's really real so that we'll live in light of that. That's what Scripture's for. That's what this table is for, to remember to remind us of what's really real so we'll live in light of it. That's, that's what gathering for worship is for. That's what sermons are for, to remind us of reality so that we will live in light of it. Shades, we need this word to constantly remind us of what's really real so that this word becomes the lens through which we see all of the world so that no matter what happens, no matter what Kushan Rithaim rises up, we know we have a sovereign savior who is in control. No matter if like Psalm 46 says, the entire earth gives way and the mountains fall into the sea, Psalm 46 says that the response of the people of God to that is we will not fear. The distinctive, I've told you this for years, the distinctive mark of the people of God in the midst of our culture and society is we are a people who do not freak out. The world freaks. We don't. We live in a way that testifies to the reality that we have a sovereign Savior and his name is Jesus and he sits at the center of this story. And I don't care what nations rise and fall, even our own. The nations can plot all they want to. Psalm 2 says that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision because he is the sovereign Savior at the center of the story. Look to him, shades, and remember who saved them, who saves you, who alone can save the sovereign Savior, Jesus? We look to him and remember and live in light of this reality. Pray with me. Father, I am grateful that you have given us your word to remind us constantly to renew our minds according to what is true and what is real. I pray that we would be a people so saturated in your word that it would be impossible for any false savior in this world to convince us that they have the power to save instead of you. I pray that we would be a people so saturated in your word that nothing could deter us from believing that it is true that through your word we get more and more of you and you become the rock-solid foundation of our faith that you are. Lord, I pray that through Judges we would see you at the center of the story and ever, always remember that you're at the center of ours. We love you. We pray that you're at work even now through your word to make us remember and live in accordance with what's really real. The reality of our sovereign Savior who sits on the throne, Jesus. We pray these things in his name and by your spirit.